Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 33, Act 1, Ted Saad, Introspective Dramaturgy, recorded August 13th, 2019, in New York City. About irrevocability Let's burn some bridges Earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie But they don't apply To people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives aloud are the only roads you can see Just remember who walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Hey, hey, TA community. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Help us spread the word about the podcast and tell a friend or a colleague to subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you didn't know, there's also a pod shop. Want some Teaching Artistry merch? Go to teachingartistry.org slash pod shop and get yourself or a friend or a loved one a t-shirt it's warm out there a mug we all need to drink uh, a hoodie sometimes it's cold or a tote bag carry your things hmm. the podcast is proud to partner with creative generation again for a new interview podcast video series on youtube called we can't go back The interview series focuses on the journeys of artists, educators, and community activists as they raise their consciousness in anti-racist, liberatory, and intersectional feminist practices through the arts. The time is well overdue to examine, interrogate, and confront racist policies and systems rooted in white supremacy. I am extremely proud to engage in these dynamic conversations with artivists and arts leaders that will hopefully instigate necessary dialogue to improve practices in the field, but also help inform my own practice. Watch and subscribe to the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body YouTube channel. Tonight, I just finished watching the first evening of the Democratic Convention for the 2020 elections. There were many speeches by many different people, including the first Black First Lady, Michelle Obama, who I stand. It is so, so very important to be civically engaged, and that looks a lot of different ways But I think the point was made time and time again in this first night about how part of our responsibilities, of course, is to vote. Uh, 
And history has been made. Kamala Harris is the first black and Asian American woman in history, in American history, to be uh, a part of the general election as a candidate for vice president for either, apparently, either political party or the two main major political parties. I was behind Kamala when she was a part of the Democratic presidential primaries and was really saddened when she had to end her campaign. And now there will be and is and has been much scrutiny about her. Um, We can get into that later. There's a lot to chew on. But for now, I'm simply going to bask in the glow of a woman of color making history, breaking all those ceilings. But really, like, it's time, y'all. It's time for some radical change. She may not be the best person for radical change, but damn it, it's a first step. Okay, step off that soapbox. We'll cut back on that at a time. But, you know, I'm thinking about outspokenness and breaking barriers and speaking up and speaking out. So Ted Saad, oof, Ted Saad, man, do I love this man. Ted Saad and I met exactly one year ago to have this conversation. And (laughs) it was an opportunity um, that I, I wasn't anticipating to get to know Ted in such a deep fashion as he opened up to me, um, which made me feel as though he felt comfortable enough to do so. I've known Ted for two decades now. He is extremely intelligent, as I said, very outspoken and an open person. And uh, he's a dramaturg. He loves history. He loves theater. He loves theater history. And he is incredibly critical and um, quite curious about many things. And so in this act, Ted and I um, chat about his upbringing, his personal life, his arts career, and then we morph into sort of a a theater talk. (laughs) And we were talking about contemporary plays written by black playwrights. Check out episode 33, act one, Ted Saad, introspective dramaturgy. Hi, Ted. Hi, Courtney. There you are. Nice to see you. Same here. Where did you grow up? Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, which is named after John Wilkes and Isaac Barre, but the natives call it Wilkes-Barre, and everybody has a very hard accent, like talk, walk, daughter, look, roof. They would say things like, gee, no, Jew. It's, uh, basically, I had to have that beaten out of me to become an actor. So you were born there? I was born there. I went to college there because mm-hmm. I was such a bad student that I couldn't get accepted anywhere else. And I went to a Catholic boys' school, and the year I went to to college was 1969, and it was the first year it became co-ed. Oh, wow. And I met my wife there because I was married. What? Yes, I was married for four years uh, from 1974 to 1970. 19- 
79, or mm-hmm. so four years or five years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told her I was gay before we got married, and she was like, do you want to be? In 1973, that was a pretty hard question to answer. Mm-hmm. I don't think I even answered it, but I told her I was gay. Mm-hmm. And her mother really forced our hand. Her mother just died, by the way, of, um, she had Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. She was 90. Francis. The wonderful thing about my wife and her family is they were Italians. They taught me how to cook, which to this day I'm grateful for because I'm a good cook and the Italians know how to eat. But they also taught me how to use a knife and a fork properly. Oh. I came up in a family. My parents were both uneducated, which I think is a curse. And uh, it was pretty hard to be not only a gay child, but a bright child with no culture in the household. When you mean when you say culture, what do you mean? Well, no music, mm. no theater. I'll tell you a funny story. If you're interested, I was one of those kids that would look at newspapers. It's a wonderful story about Andy Warhol when he was a child growing up in Reading, Pennsylvania. Some elderly gay man uh, used to pay him a dollar as a child, like most kids in this time period, because you're much younger than I am, we'd get a nickel or a couple of cents to go down to the store and buy Mrs. X uh, some sugar or some mm-hmm. milk or mm-hmm. something. This guy, who Andy indicated in his biography was gay, used to pay Andy a dollar to sit on this guy's front porch and look at Harper's magazines and get ideas. And get ideas? That was what he paid him to do. Look at those magazines, Andy, and get ideas. And then Andy became a fucking brilliant, brilliant, iconoclastic artist, Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would look at magazines on my own (laughs) and get ideas. And um, I was looking at the local paper and I saw a picture of the college I ultimately went to, King's College, run by the Holy Cross Fathers, mm. of a Shakespeare play. It was Romeo and Juliet. I remember the picture, and it was when uh, Juliet is um, crawling on her knees, begging her father. I think it's the moment where she's begging her father not to send her away or to allow her. To go to the nunnery? Yes. Yeah. He, she's begging her father, mm-hmm. Lord Capulet. Right? Yes. Anyway, Montague's in the Capulet. She's a Capulet. Mm -hmm. And um, I saw that picture and I wanted to see it. And so my mother, who used to hang clothes up in the basement where there was a coal furnace, Mm -hmm. when it was raining, she couldn't hang them outside. So she's hanging the clothes up. And I was seven and I started to scream, take me to see this play, take me, take me. I'm not taking you to see no goddamn play. Take me, take me, take me, take me. I screamed so loud and so vociferously that I wrenched my neck and they had to take me to a doctor and it cost them so much money. My mother said, next time I'll take you to the goddamn play. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So. I know that they did their best. I mean, it wasn't like I didn't have food or clothes. Mm. I do remember um, I was a clothes horse. I still kind of am. I'm not like some queens, like, you know, I got dressed. But I do like my clothes. And um, I was 
buying clothes and saying, can I have blah, 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 for that sweater? Can I have blah, 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 <laughs> for that coat? Can I have that blah, 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 pair of shoes? She goes, I'm not paying for those. You need to get a job. I was like, I'm 12. She said, get a job. So I got a paper route. Mm. I was a paper person. Were you? I was. They don't do that anymore. I don't think they do. It was hard. I found it real hard. <laughs> okay. Now, please don't misunderstand this. But my route had a lot of people who were on welfare. Mm. So I had to go to their door on the 15th or the 30th mm-hmm. to get my money. Get your money. I need my $2. <laughs> How did it go? Not great. Well, it was okay. <laughs> it looks but like. I, I mean, you know, this is terrible to say, but I ultimately... Um, put one of my experiences in a play I was playing a racist talk show host for a show that I did early on in New York at a place called Rosha Shea mm-hmm. and it was run by Lee Brewer and Ruth Malachek who were avant-garde before anybody else and they had a little basement thing and um, me and a couple of friends adapted uh, a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl which is kind of brilliant. Mm. And they asked, and we contemporized it, and I was supposed to be a racist talk show host. And um, uh, my, uh, it was called the Ted Sod Keep Off the Grass show. <laughs> Riff on Sod, Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was saying all these hateful racist things. And I remember one of the welfare families had, quite a number of children but I could swear to you one of those children was named chlorine so I said like like chlorine like like in the pool pool. okay chlorine Mm -hmm. so I made up this horrible joke as the racist host saying yeah I know this black woman she named all her kids after the periodic table in a chemistry book fluorine chlorine bromine get your ass in the Cadillac we got to go down to the welfare center. I mean, people went like that. They looked oh at me God. and went, oh. but I was playing a racist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think you have to sort of put yourself in that head mm-hmm. of how, first of all, there are no names more ingenious than some of the names that have been given to black people that I've encountered. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. It's very creative. It's extremely creative. And it's a way to say, I'm not using the white culture. Mm -hmm. Except I have met my fair share of Tiffany's who are black. Mm. Uh, What nationality are you? Lebanese. Would you prefer? No, I'm Lebanese, second generation Mm -hmm. and Syrian. And And it's kind of fascinating because my... Um, grandparents on both sides emigrated at different times. Mm. My grandparents on my father's side met here, and I believe my mother's side too. It's kind of tricky because I only had one grandparent who was alive when I was born. Everyone else had been deceased. Do you have older siblings? I have an older brother. You know I don't talk to my brothers. I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah, I had to end that. Mm. It was very painful because they... They never kind of let me get past being a, an adolescent, and they still treated me with that same sort of um, 
disdain for being gay. Mm, and it, I mean, you know, they didn't talk, call it being gay then. They just said, why do you act like a girl? Mm. And uh, it was painful. And finally, you know, I, there's a lot going on here. I don't know if you need to want to hear it. But my younger brother, when he found out I was HIV positive, uh, refused to let me see his children for eight years. And he's a nurse. Yeah. So it's not, it wasn't about the HIV. It was about being Ted Sod's little brother and really being an unhappy person and mm. trying to hurt me. And he did. He did it very successfully. My older brother, I, and first of all, my older brother's eight years older. So he's like, I don't even know who he is. Mm. You know, after five years, there's a five year difference. Yeah. It's like they're, in, they're another, they're not. It's they're like, like a stranger. Yeah, they're yeah, like it's another like having generation. a stranger. Yeah. My younger brother is five years younger, and I did look after him for the longest time. I mean, he was a drug addict, and I... Uh, well, we don't need to drudge all that. I don't mean to drudge Well, it's that okay, out. because it's really part of who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm going to therapy. I'm trying to understand forgiveness. I'm trying mm -hmm. to understand my own rage. I believe that our emotions, we choose to indulge in them. And I've learned this from my therapist. You know, I, I, therapy never worked for me because in the traditional modality, you go in and you talk about your past and the painful incidents of your past. And I would come out of those offices wrecked. Mm. And it was more painful than when I went in until I encountered my current therapist who's from uh, the Cognitive Behavioral School, which teaches you to think differently about mm. what happened. It's about changing your thinking. And we make a choice to be angry. We make a choice to be happy. Mm -hmm. We really do. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's been hard not to be angry given the current um, political state Absolutely. and the racism that is like, it's like Nazi Germany. So it's very hard um, to stay positive. Mm -hmm. This is a lot, Courtney. I hope you were. I'm ready for it. All right. So it's, uh, you know, I'm, I have a very complicated past. And, and to tell you the truth, art really, and being a teaching artist, mm -hmm. an artist uh, saved me yeah. uh, because I was um, born into the wrong family. Uh, there was no education, really, you know, in terms of the arts. Mm. Uh my parents did their best. I know that. But mm -hmm. I, I, I never understood why I was in that family. I was mm -hmm. like, why, why am I here? Yeah, and there's something that you said <clears throat> that I, I want to hit or delve deeper into is that you said uh, feeling like you were the misfit, that you didn't necessarily um, fit into your particular family unit, but that the arts really helped you. So where, as, as a kid... Um, or in school, like where, where were you engaging in the arts? Well, it's fascinating because, um, first of all, I should tell you that in second grade, I was, you know, in a regular class, they had us all take the IQ test and, uh, I scored so high that they pulled me out and put me in accelerated classes. But I later figured out that I was just one point above the cutoff. So the cutoff was 125, and I was 126. Mm -hmm. So I'm in an accelerated class with people with 145, and I still to this day cannot do fractions. Hmm. I wouldn't know how to do a fraction if you, or 
any of that. Never interested me. But anything to do with language or literature yeah. or art. So I was put in a different school. And at that particular school, there was a teacher named Miss Gannon who did the Christmas play and all the plays, and she cast me as the lead. And I was like, that was it. Because, you know, I got a lot of validation. And I was a heavy set child. I was very heavy. And, um, you know, I ate myself into comfort because I was so unhappy with my family and my not be, you know, I, I, when we we played baseball as kids, they would pick Linda Dalaverde before me because she was better. Mm. And I was always put in left field because nobody ever hit over there. And I played, you know, like this. I would stand out there like, why do I have to do this? And my mother used to say to me, you should be more rugged. You should be more rugged. Mm. Like it was something you could just do. Right. So, you know, I mean, Miss Gannon kind of got me. She, we, we did the legend of the snowman, and I was a snowman. And I remember being so overwhelmed by the applause and the experience that I started to cry my eyes out at the curtain call. Mm. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> and my mother, who had seen it, who had always been like, I know this sounds weird, but I think she was in love with my older brother. In fact, I think the marriage soured after I was born because I was a cesarean. I have no memory of my parents sleeping together. Mm. And I have a brother younger than me, so mm. that's kind of <laughs> weird. But um, I remember her putting me to bed that night after the play and going, good or something to that effect mm -hmm. you know I, I often try to remember well, how did I get to be so complicated and I remember at one point um, I had rheumatic fever when I was three mm. they took me to the hospital and this is when they wouldn't allow parents to stay mm. And I, this is my only, you know, childhood memory. The one that I know happened. Mm. I was being held by a very large woman with a bun and one of those white hats that nurses used to wear. And she was very large and her uniform didn't quite fit. And she was holding me and walking me that way, away from my parents and I screamed and screamed, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me. I mean, you know, they didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. I do remember them bringing me cheese nips and Coca-Cola, which was my comfort food. Mm -hmm. But it was, an, it was traumatic. Yeah. See, oh God, my brain is gone, Courtney, but who was the guy we went to his workshop uptown. Sean Jin, right? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Sean talked about trauma mm -hmm. and how we can't really <laughs> help these young people until we deal with their trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I found a way to deal with my trauma, but not always health in a healthy manner. Mm -hmm. I mean, really... 
in a lot of unhealthy ways mm. I dealt with my trauma. And then there was the arts. Mm. So I think I'm a product of real intelligence, figuring it out for myself. How do I cope? Mm -hmm. How do I... I mean, I never considered suicide. I always thought... I didn't understand it. Why would you kill yourself? I didn't get it. Mm. So that wasn't an option. But I knew I didn't want to go into the army either. It's like, the army? No. I mean, I was like, I don't... That's, yeah. That's too butch. I don't want to do that shit. But um, you know, I think it's. I think for people who don't conform to whatever standards of beauty, masculinity, race, privilege, blah, 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 you have to find a way to express yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. when you talk about dancing and whatever it was that you were first attracted to. It was your effort to figure out how you can express yourself. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So Miss Gannon, the play, and then uh, ultimately, oh, God, do I really want to talk about this? I realized I was homosexual, and I wrote this salacious note to this kid. Uh And I stupidly left it in a book. And my ninth grade biology teacher found it and shamed the fuck out of me. Wow. Like, and she was Lebanese. And she just lost her mind because, you know, homosexuality was a sin. Sorry. I know I'm not supposed to scream like that, but um, into the mic. But um, that was it for me. I was like, get me out of this school. I can't go back because my mother was brought in mm. and uh, we were in front of the principal, Mr. Bays. And I don't know how, what he said, but at home, my mother, you know, she started to weep. She goes, oh, don't tell me you're a homosexual. Don't tell me. I said, okay, I'm not. Oh, see, they, Dad, I they wish knew, that people could see your faces when you're telling these stories. Well, maybe you need a video I camera. I do, I sure do. So the point is, is that, you know, that generation, psycho psychiatrists were like, oh, that mm. meant you were sick and it was it was uh, verboten. Mm. Like if, if, if your child had to go to a psychiatrist, that was bad. And I did, they did send me to a psychiatrist because I was, you know, at one point... I was laying out in the middle of busy highways. But, but I think it was for attention. I don't think it's because I wanted to kill myself. Okay. It was like, oh, look, I could lay out in the highway. And everybody says, hey, don't lay out in the highway. Mm. But, um, you know, it was, it was just so sad to grow up then and mm. not have the resources of a wealthy family, an educated family, a family that got me. I used to fantasized that I was the um, illegitimate child of Lucille Ball um, or Queen Elizabeth II. That's amazing. 
I thought I was like one of the princes that she just got rid of. Often arts can be a, a ripple of hope for us, something that we can hold on to as a beacon. Um, so I guess I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm going with a question right now, but I'm just, this is part of the reason why I, I wanted you on because I, you are so outspoken <laughs> and I appreciate that. I feel like people will enjoy listening to you tell your stories. Well, or- I graduated from a theater department at, uh, King's College in Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania, my hometown. Mm-hmm. I then had a series of, um, well, I did a journeymanship on Long Island at the Path Playhouse. Right, you said that. And then my wife's family insisted that we come down to Florida. Uh, Florida, Jesus Christ. Washington, D.C. We lived in Falls Church, Virginia. I worked for the federal government. I worked in an office of all black women. It was hysterical. (laughs) I was a grade three file clerk. (sighs) Working for the government. Yes, in the IRS, because my wife's aunt, Claire, who's still alive, her husband, Joe Tedesco, was a a major person. Joe Tedesco? Why do I know that name? I don't know, maybe... I feel like that's a character name, maybe. Well, but he had a major position, got me in. I I don't even know if I took a test. I probably had to take something. Was this because your wife was like, you need to get a job? No, not my wife. My my wife's relatives were like, you need to be responsible. Uh You have a wife. And so I just went along with it. I hadn't even come to New York yet. I mean, I was not ready for New York anyway. I would take the E train and wind up in Queens and go where the fuck am I? <laughs> anyway, so um, I became a file clerk. <laughs> it was all black women. Uh, Bertha Gillis, I remember, was a supervisor. And there was a grade three typist who had, this is 1973. This is around when Nixon resigned. Oh. that's I was in Washington when Nixon resigned. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, a grade three typist with the hugest afro, and she used to have her pick in her hair. She had a little baby. Her name was Ticola Plowden, and she had a baby named Tiandre. And she would type, and then she'd just like pick her hair, and she'd look over at me. And at one point, I remember, I must have been there a f- couple of weeks, maybe longer, and she went, Sad, you ain't hardly white. That was a compliment. Mm-hmm. That was a big compliment. <laughs> and they knew I was in the theater because mm-hmm. I had done a play at uh, Shakespeare, Folger Shakespeare. I was like a spear carrier oh. in Henry the Fourth. Mm-hmm. But I had done that before I got the job. I guess I don't know. There was you couldn't really make a living as an actor in Washington D.C. at that point. I just want to note that that was before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Courtney. You're welcome. So when I left that job to go be in the Social Security Administration, um, I don't know what I was doing there. Oh, it was I was reviewing black lung claims, mostly from Virginia. Oh, Can you imagine? Oh, jeez. With a bunch of other young people, and it was so bizarre. But it was closer to where I lived, so it was easier commute. When I left the filing clerk 
Office of Black Women in the IRS, they gave me, they knew I loved uh, Kurt Vile and the Three Penny Opera, and they gave me a vinyl recording of it in German, because it was the only one oh they were able God. to find. <laughs> das Spickenhauer. It was, it was That's so very sweet. sweet. And Tacola called me at one point. I think I was in Seattle, and it was years later, and she went, this is Ticola. I went, oh my God, how's your baby? Oh, he fine. Where are you? I mean, it was just, I know this is gonna sound horrible, and I don't give a fuck, but I always loved black women. My parents were racist. My parents didn't want any black people to move on our street because they were afraid the house would, you know, and I never got it. When I was 13, I made friends with Clarita Witt. She came from a black family. There were 14 kids, and we walked downtown together, and some neighbors saw me, this is like the 60s, walking with Clarita Witt, and they called my mother and said, Teddy was walking with a black girl. And my mother said, why were you walking with Clarita Witt? And I said, she's my friend. You can't do that. Do you want people to talk about you? I was like, I don't understand. I was so confused how people who looked black had prejudice against black people. And then within two days, my mother was, take this food down to Mrs. Witt's house. I mean, she was so weird. I don't want them to live on our street, but make sure they have food. It was like, mm. I mean, this is what I grew up with. And I thought to myself, this is crazy. Shh. I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. I still don't mm -hmm. get it. I don't get, I don't get when people, the other thing I remember in terms of race and ethnicity is I was like five or six. And if I saw, um, images of white people hosing black kids who were trying to go to school, I would start to cry. Mm. And there was an image of these bodies being unearthed at the concentration camps, the mm. corpses. Mm. I would start to cry. So I, I think I had an innate sense of injustice and um, I know we've only talked about college, but you know, want to know something, Courtney, and maybe the details are interesting, but I wanted to be an actor. My mother died when I was 26. She always seemed to love my brother better. I was always like, not good enough, it seemed. Not masculine enough, not my brother. And when my mother died, I turned to my wife. We were married, maybe. My mother died in 76, we were married in 74. And I mm. said to her, now who am I doing this for? Acting. Mm. It took me another 30 years to, you know, to just go, this is ridiculous. I'm so ambivalent about this. It's a brutal life. I'm, I have never been cast, you know, as a, person who spoke English without an accent. Never. To this day, I really? still do. Never. 
unless I produced it myself. You mean not in television and film? Television, movies. I'm always not in theater. Well, I did play Puck once, and I didn't wasn't asked to do it with the Latin accent. But when I first came to New York, they all said, "Do you speak Spanish?" Because they thought I was Puerto Rican. It wasn't until 9-11 that I became Arab. And then they wanted me to speak Arabic. And my parents only spoke Arabic when they didn't want us to know what they were talking about. Mm. So I I never really fit in. I mean, I think I'm a fucking brilliant actor. I'm sure you are. I've seen you. I've seen you on Law and Order. I saw you in that movie. You saw me do an improv. I've seen you do an improv. Uh, Those people applauded. Oh <laughs> when I scared the shit out of them oh playing them with Sergeant or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was hysterical. So how you kept talking, you keep alluding to Seattle. How did you get there? Oh, that's interesting. I went out to do <laughs> I did a play by John Guare, which theater people love, called Landscape of the Body. Mm. I first did it here in New York in nineteen eighty four. Gary Sneeze directed it. He's now a Republican. And um, it was, you know, when Steppenwolf was just becoming national news. Mm. He and Malkovich had done True West to great acclaim. Malkovich had directed my husband, Burke, in Balm and Gilead, which has a huge cast Mm. at Circle Rep, which I was a part of. Mm. They no longer exist. They were a brilliant company. Lanford Wilson Mm -hmm. came out of there. And um, uh, I basically you know, had an agent, auditioned, got some work. I mean, it's why I'm getting a pension from Equity now. And um, Gary cast me in uh, Landscape of the Body as a Latino, Raulito, who was a straight man who wore a dress. He had a brilliant monologue. Why do I wear this dress? Your sister asked me that exact same question when I met her here. I mean, it was perfect for me. And where I had seen the original production at the public, and they had some white guy play it, and I said, "I can put that work." And then when it was revived seven years later at Second Stage, Mm. I went after it, and Guerre came up to me and said, "You made me feel like Pirandello. It was like the character came out of my head was standing in front of me." Whoa! And then. I did it again in Seattle because Goyer said, get this guy. Mm -hmm. Doug Hughes directed it. And then I went down to L.A. because I thought, I'm in Seattle. I might as well go down to L.A. Mm -hmm. I lasted six months. But I did Landscape of the Body in L.A. I did it three times. Wow. And then I got a call from Chicago. Goodman said, come and do it. I went, I can't. (laughs) I've done it. I did it three times. I don't know if I could do it again. Mm -hmm. Because each time a director had to like dismantle the performance and then... Um, but I, to this day, I think Goyer is one of our most brilliant playwrights. I just saw his new play at Lincoln Center. I thought it was brilliant. The Times shat on it, but I thought it was brilliant. The one uh, that's called Nantucket Sleigh Ride. Listen, I worked as an actor. Mm-hmm. I was in the Bam Theater Company before it became Next Wave. It's the, I was in oh, the company wow. that killed the Bam, <laughs> and they had to reinvent itself. <laughs> We called it the Bam Burn Center at that point. I mean, I got the worst reviews of my life as Puck. John Simon in New York Magazine said, Ted Sod's Puck 
Looks like he just came off of a bus and truck of the Ritz, which was a, a play about a gay bathhouse. Oh, boy. Yeah. See, you remember yeah. your bad reviews. Oh. You never remember your good ones. Oh, oh anyway, I, I acted. Not enough and not to my satisfaction. I went to Seattle. I became a writer mm. and occasionally a director. In Seattle, I finally took the 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 HIV test. I didn't think, I thought, I'm not one of those guys that was fucking everything in sight down at the piers. You know, we thought erroneously that it was just the people who were whoring 24-7. Mm. So, what time is this? What year? It, well, what's so interesting is I got tested in 89, mm -hmm. but I remember when I seroconverted in 84. I've been positive since 1984, oh, even wow. though I didn't get my diagnosis until 89, because oh. the illness, the seroconversion illness is unforgettable. I levitated off the bed. I was so sick. I was never and have never been that sick again. Mm. It was insane. I mean, poor Burke was throwing every coat he could find, and then he had to put me in a bathtub with all ice. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was the worst illness I ever had, and it lasted about three days because your body is, is trying to throw off the virus, right. and it couldn't, so I seroconverted. When I got the diagnosis that you know, found out I was HIV positive, they still called you on the phone. And I was out in Seattle. Burke and I were taking a break from one another. I had a new boyfriend, and he said, you should be tested. I said, I don't want to be tested. He said, mm. So I went. Mm -hmm. And then the doctor said, I have bad news. You're positive. And I stayed in bed for six months. And then I wrote a play about it with Irene Fornes. Came out and did a playwriting workshop, and I wrote a play that became a movie. And, you know... Art saved me mm. whenever I, and to this day, I either write or act or, you know, acting is hard because you're at the mercy of somebody else. Mm. Directing is hard because the artistic director tells you who to cast. Writing is the hardest, mm. and I'm the least adept at it, but you're autonomous. Right. So it's the generative part of it. So I've done it all. And I, I started being a teaching artist in um, 88, before they gave degrees in it. <laughs> and I was in Seattle. Mm -hmm. You know, once I found out I was positive, Burke came out and stayed with me for five years. Is this too much? Too I love boring? it. I love it. And uh, basically... Um, Can I just ask, uh, what was the name of the play that you wrote about this experience? Well... The play version is called Satan and Simon DeSoto. It's about an HIV-positive man who sells his soul mm -hmm. to the devil in order to be HIV-negative, mm -hmm. and the devil is a junior high school principal who I had encountered in Seattle as a teaching artist. That's amazing. It is, and I'll tell you the story behind that if you're interested. I am. At any rate, in 1988, I'm working as a waiter at Ray's Boathouse, a lunch waiter. I had never been a waiter, but I needed the money, and I was living in Seattle. I went to L.A. before I went back to Seattle. I did the play. I went to L.A. L.A. was like a horror story because you would sit al fresco in Santa Monica and go, that's the most beautiful. 
No, that's the most beautiful person. No, that's the most beautiful person. I spend all my time in a mirror, in a mirror, going, oh, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm, I don't, I, I can't, I don't think I can. I, I'd go to agents and they go, five years. If you don't stay five years, I'm not going to sign you. I just couldn't. Mm. Plus, in New York, you know, you walk down the street, you go from building to building, there's an energy. Yes. In L.A., you're driving and driving and driving. It's not for me either. Ugh. Anyway, I went back to Seattle. It's a small community. Mm -hmm. I started to act, direct, and write. All of it. Mm. I stayed there for 11 years. And somehow, somebody saw me do something. I don't know what it was, but this woman from the Washington State Arts Commission who had teaching artists on a roster that schools could pick. Mm. I know exactly how this happened. Before I left New York, I acted in two young playwrights festivals. Mm -hmm. The first, which was at Circle Rep, and the fifth, or the fourth, which was at Playwrights Horizons. These are festivals that were started by a man called Gerald Chapman, who died of AIDS, he brought it over from England. Sondheim brought him here to start it. We mm. did it at Circle Rep. I was in the plays. Gerald said, you should be teaching kids how to write plays. So I went through the training. I started doing their, um, what did you call them? The Oh, sorry. You would think I would know this since I was a teaching artist here at New Vic. The Guiding Principles. Mm -hmm. They had Guiding Principles. There were wonderful exercises. We used to give the kids pictures from Diana Arbus's photography oh, wow. and have them write monologues. All sorts of wonderful exercises. I had done that, and i that was my what I could do. Mm -hmm. So some woman, I had done a workshop where I had won an award as a playwright out there. I just moved there, and I got this award from oh. an arts commission. And this woman said, "Have you? do you like kids? Yeah. You want to be a teaching artist? That's how they hired you to be a teaching artist in 1988. <laughs> do you like kids? You're hired. Go out and teach. That's wonderful. No training. No training. No Nothing. Pedagogy. Nothing. <laughs> and to this day, I guess I'm still like that. Yeah. I'm like, pedagogy? What's that? What's Is that, that a pedicure? <laughs> anyway. So... I know this is all very convoluted, but I, I have to tell you, it's it all makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. I remember listening to Shirley Knight. Do you know who that is? She's an actress. Okay. She was in the original Landscape of the Body. Mm. And she once said, you can only fight for one social issue in your lifetime. Do you know what hers was? Oh, wow. What? Gun control. And I decided that being a teaching artist was my social issue. Mm. And I think it's actually been more satisfying than being a performer. Because mm. being a performer, you're at the mercy of so much. And it's so mercurial. And being a performer of color, it's even worse. So it's like, you know, I think I found what I was supposed to do as a teaching artist, then I've met the most remarkable people. I mean, the artists you people had here. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was always grandpa. 
I remember once saying to Heidi, we're grandpa and grandma. She said, speak for yourself. I'm no grandma. I was like, okay, Heidi. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I felt like grandpa all the time, mm -hmm. but I really loved your people because they were so smart and game. Mm. You know, a couple of times I was like, I can't do this. This is too stupid. And then I would do it and I would go, this is not stupid. <laughs> You know, <laughs> well, what I, I liked about you, you do so much dramaturgy. I do, too. Now, and now. like that's your title at Roundabout, right? Dramaturg? Uh, yeah, they asked me, what are you? And I said, I'm the education dramaturg. Not I've, that I have a degree in it or anything, but I do do a lot of research for right. every uh, play. And I, you know, you've seen my talks. Yeah, I mean, I, and you, what is interesting to me is you're always naming somebody and then telling their history and then you go, you know, you move forward and it's like, I don't, I don't know if I do that. I do research, but do I retain all that information? I don't know. Um, and I, I, that's always been a, a very clear um uh, tenant, I guess, tenant of yours, of like you do your research and you understand, and then you make the connections between, you know, this play and that play, or this experience and that experience. You know, there's a lot of connecting that you do, and I think that it's because you're a dramaturg. Actually, um, I love that, but I have a lot of teachers come up to me who come to the talks that I do, and they go, "You're a born teacher. Where do you teach?" Mm -hmm. I go, uh, "Here." Right. And uh, I don't have a terminal degree. Even though I was an adjunct in directing at Brooklyn College, mm -hmm. we used to call it 13th grade. Oh, boy. But, you know, that's all pejorative and not fair. Mm -hmm. uh, the point is, is that I feel like I am a good teacher. I'm not an intellectual. But I have a gift, I think, that makes me a fairly decent teacher to... Take in information, read it, hear it, experience it, and break it down for people mm -hmm. in a way that they can experience it and possibly enjoy it. So it may be because I've been a performer, and it may be because I just know how to take the most salient aspects of something and deliver it. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I know I do, and I experience this here at New Vic, is as a teacher, I never, ever ask a question knowing the answer, as if I know the answer. I think that's death. Mm -hmm. I truly am curious, what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. And I have the best story that's related to my teaching practice at New Vic when we were doing The Bluest Eye, which is still one of the most stunning things they've ever done. Lydia Diamond, who just wrote Tony Stone for us, mm -hmm. uh, did that adaptation of the late Tony Morrison's <sighs> book. Um, I went into a classroom and I thought, okay, we should talk about race. This place about race and internalized mm -hmm. um, self-hate. I said, 
I had done all this research. Like, there's one theory of there's only three races. There's another theory that there's nine races. And I kind of laid it out for the kids. And I said, so how many races do you think there are? And this kid who basically, I forget what school I was at. It wasn't the Dalton school. I know that much. Because the one kid had his head down on the desk mm. all the time. Like, you are so fucking boring. Get the fuck out of my space. And I said, so how many races are there? And he lifts his head up raises his hand and I go yeah and he goes one race the human race that alone made every bad experience I've ever had worth it because that kid taught me something mm -hmm. that's so brilliant and maybe he heard it on TV. I don't know. I don't care. Mm -hmm. But he participated. I provoked him into participating somehow. Or the idea provoked him. It's fucking brilliant. There is only one race. Mm -hmm. So when you're a racist, you don't understand that we're all human. Mm -hmm. Or that race is a construct. That's not Yeah, right. I mean, you can get really heady about it, but let's but just start with... One... Yeah. Human. Mm -hmm. We're human first. Mm -hmm. And this is our earth, which people are destroying. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated, but being a teaching artist is so noble. I know that's overused. But it's it's such a good thing to be. Mm -hmm. And you make it possible for people to do that, Courtney. You teach us, you enable us, you are teaching artists yourself, you, you know, that's a big deal. I hope you're proud of yourself, because you should be. It's really exciting to have people like yourself who get it and who are in charge mm -hmm. of an institution that uh, gets it. I feel the same way about Jennifer. She mm -hmm. spends all her time now, you know, talking to funders mm -hmm. and going to meetings but she knows what it what it what it does mm -hmm. especially and and she, we have worked tirelessly to get our seasons not to be all white plays it's amazing it's really Next impressive year. i've heard Five yeah. of the nine plays I mean, that's are about people of color. Huge deal. It's huge. You can see it. You can see it. I mean, I as somebody who again has a very deep affection for that organization, I, I've thought the same way, and I, and I think about that for our our work too, or what's on our stage, and it's it's very impressive. Very, well, very and impressive. Todd has been at the vanguard of that. Really? He's made that happen. He uh, runs well, the place. Yeah. He gets it. Mm -hmm. That's a question I have. I mean, the mo some of the mo so you know the the way it works here at the New Victory is that it's all student audiences, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that's exactly the same at at Roundabout or Ca or it is depends it on on how many schools could come. I mean, you know, it's so Well, I guess critical. what I'm, uh, the reason why I'm bringing it up is that I'm sure there's critical, I mean, there's like ticket sales and there's all sorts of reasons for that, I well, imagine. Well, usually but. it's content. Like, you know, right. the kids, 
is the F word in it. Well, the kids say worse than the F word, yeah. for God's sake. But the teachers are held accountable. Right. So it's, it's crazy. It's, it's challenging. So, But I guess my qu- my question is, is if Todd uh, Haynes, who's the artistic director, is at the vanguard of shifting the the landscape of the programming, the artistic programming, what have one you know what have been the conversations but you know is there a shift in the in the makeup of the audience as well well i noticed when we did tony stone that there were uh many more black people in the audience because tony stone is was erased from history until martha ackman wrote this book and then another white woman optioned it and then a black woman wrote the play version Mm -hmm. And a black woman choreographed it and a white woman directed it. It was all females wow. who made this happen. Mm-hmm. Many of whom were diehard baseball fans. Interesting. Uh, it was fascinating to do the talkbacks. You know, the, the in the Negro Leagues, like the Harlem Globetrotters, there was an aspect of minstrel. Mm-hmm. You know, not only was there a high level of athleticism, but there was they were expected to do minstrel. Mm-hmm. And in Lydia's adaptation or her play, really, which is inspired by the biography Curveball, the remarkable story of Tony Stone by Martha Ackman, she includes that minstrel. And the white people would applaud and the black people would cry. Mm-hmm. And when a black woman would say, it hurt me deeply when the audience started to applaud that. Of course, the actors had a hard time with it. It's just, we we are in such a bizarre time where, you know, people think they're progressive and don't see themselves as racism, but they don't understand what something like that triggers in a black person Mm -hmm. and so just the last talk back which lasted 35 minutes and of course you know the crew goes on overtime so Mm. anyway um a young black woman waited to the very end to say to the six five or six black actors who had come out for the talk back um how has this play affected your lives as black people today? It was deep, honey. It was deep. Mm-hmm. It was deep. It was. What was? What were some of the well, answers? Well, you know, the pain mm-hmm. that is so present, mm-hmm. and not just because the black actors i think we're having a golden age of black theater it's like it's amazing it is amazing yeah and a black play just won the pulitzer Mm -hmm. but uh didn't you just say every 28 minutes a a black person is killed in this country by a white cop did i say that i didn't say that what is it called 28 minutes oh no the meeting i had before (laughs) you oh my god wow Mm-hmm. The woman I'm working with, mm-hmm. Katie Christie, who is biracial, okay, and was adopted. Mm-hmm. Uh, she told me there's this thing called 28 minutes, 
which is based on the fact that every 28 minutes a black person is killed in this country by a cop. crazy. Seems crazy. I mean, I don't know how they did it, how they time it, but that was the statistic. And they did these series of plays about it called 28 Minutes. And she and I are, they uh, reconfigured the education department over at Roundabout, and Mm -hmm. she and I are working closely together. And she is on fire. Uh, but you know, she's also trying to bring in people of color to see these plays that are written by people of color and about people of color. And she refuses to exploit them. She goes, we're not going to use these people because our new, uh, umbrella is, um, audience and community engagement. Mm -hmm. So I'm part of that department. There's like four of us in it. Mm -hmm. And three of us, four, we're all of color. I mean, that seems like such a weird label, but it means that we don't always fit in to, you know, the dominant aesthetic or the dominant culture, the, you know. I know I'm going to get slapped for this, but I walk down the subway and I see ad after ad about white people in trouble. And I say to myself, don't they ever get tired of seeing themselves? And the answer is no. No. But it's, it's, it's just part of like being on the outside looking in. And yet there are people who are on the outside that I will never, like I don't know what it's like to be a black woman. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I don't know what it's like to be a straight man, really, <laughs> except to have sex with a woman, which... That's not the, that's all not of it. it. No. So yeah. it's like it, the, the idea that people hate other people and don't even try to get inside their heads, mm-hmm. it, it fascinates me. Did you see Fairview? Yes. And you know what? I have to confess, I got lost. I got lost. Mm-hmm. I thought it was like... And of course, I was with two white men who refused to go on stage. Really? They refused. My husband being one of them. Yeah. He said, don't bully me, basically. Uh-huh. He said, I do not want to be bullied into feeling guilty about what's gone down in this country. He, but I, I missed the biggest part of that fucking show. I, first of all, when they do the uh, replay mm-hmm. of the first scene, well, when those two sisters have that conversation, and I can't even remember all of it, I was I was convulsing when she goes, "I'm thinking about this, but that doesn't mean I'm saying it." And that dynamic was so real to me mm-hmm. and so funny that I was like, "And uh, because you couldn't see that, I'm rocking in my chair." <laughs> anyway, the point is, is that then they do this repeat of all the action while you hear these voiceovers of white people talking about what race would you like to be mm-hmm. which went on forever for so long and i said oh I was please so angry i was so I was like, exhausted I, I was like stop this i was bored i was looking around i was like what the fuck is this so what so so we can talk about because i think the play will be closed by the time this airs so what happens in that so there's this whole like picture family matters like picture black families in the 90s like the cosby's like that kind of 
thing where this this house is pristine the house is gorgeous they are definitely middle class or upper middle class and they are a black family and like this is a party for their mom they're getting ready for a party for the mom who's upstairs upstairs and and locked in her room or whatever and upset and all you hear is them talking about mama this and mama that and and so so and there's like this neuroses that's happening right so the whole first scene is just like or first act i guess is just meeting these different characters and the, and seeing their relationships, the the mother or the wife and the husband, their relationship, the sisters and their relationship, and then the daughter. Right. Well, I thought was I thought her issue was she was a lesbian. Right. <laughs> so she comes in and she's I mean she's got this whole first monologue where she barely takes a breath and she's walking all the way around and da, 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 da. she's on her phone and she's doing this and then and then there's this moment where she she. Like it gets a little chaotic and then she's looking at the audience like she's in the spot and she looks at the audience and she actually sees us up until this point. You know, you just think there's There's a fourth fourth wall and and she sees us and you realize that she sees us. And then it go and then it snaps back into this. uh, uh, You see the scene again, but now you have this voiceover and you're like, wait, what's now? I'm like, what's happening? Why am I listening to these in like asinine people um and then it goes into this one person talking about the man and i stopped listening there because i was like i hate this person the most i think he ends up playing tyrone tyrone exactly the uncle tyrone (laughs) right wasn't he an uncle yeah i don't uh yes he's one of the the sister's brothers yeah here's the thing Mm. that makes me feel like an idiot Mm. i never realized when those people show up that they were the people talking about what race they want to be. I didn't get it. Yeah, I the only reason why I got it How? was because I recognized the mother's voice. I didn't get it, and I thought the playwright should have helped the, us. The, yeah, no, yeah. The playwright should have given minute. us a little bit more. I was like, what the? Why does Grandma look like Lena Horne? So basically, these white people like insert themselves <laughs> into this fictional story and destroy the house. This and but they fit. They they they. <laughs> They are playing black characters, but they are white people, white actors. Appropriating. So they're completely appropriating in their own, whatever their own construct is of, of the blacks, of various black stereotypes. And the only person who really understands is this girl, is the girl. She sees this and she's like, what is happening? What is going on? And, And she loses it. But you're right. I thought the same thing that because... There was this line that said, Mama, doesn't you know like how Mama girl. doesn't like Tiffany or whatever the girl, the sister, the friend's name was. And 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 so anyway, one of the one of the male characters, the white male characters, is playing this the friend. <laughs> and just it's just so surreal. Fucked up. And it's completely surreal and absurd. And it is about so many different things. It's about cultural appropriation mm-hmm. and thinking like having the luxury of being able to say, well, what race would you want to be if you weren't white? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I'd want to be Chinese because of the food. I don't know what the hell was going on, <laughs> but I, I was like, huh? But yeah, by the but end, the whole set is destroyed. By the characters who are appropriating blackness. And then she Because stops that's what everything. they think is supposed to happen, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And then she st- the girl stops everything. Walks into the audience. And she walks into the audience. But first she says, 
I can I like can you can you see me? Right? Doesn't she say that something like that? Something like that. Do you know what it's like that you see me but I can't see you? Or I'm not allowed to look at you or something like that. And eventually she says, if I asked you to come up, but she's not looking at the audience. She's like, if I asked you to come up here, would you? Could you? Would you do that? And then eventually she's Would you turned, trade places with would me? Would you trade places with me? That's right. Would you trade places at me? Like I'm I'm on stage. I'm on I'm I'm performing for you. We're performing for you, but now what if could you come on stage? And basically? almost all the white people went up. Because the invitation was for the white people. And and then she goes into the audience and and I mean what from my from my thing, like I I knew that this happened because somebody had told me about it. I didn't know. So I but I didn't know how or or what. And so eventually what happens is like not everybody who's white goes up on stage. I was with two guys who didn't but the, the time that I went a lot of people went up there. Me too. I mean, the 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 whole set was was full. Yep. And and they just left? stood there looking out at us like idiots. Right. <laughs> so one of the things that happens is that you can't hear when you're on stage. So the actors all come out. All the black actors come out onto the stage, but all the white ones stay on stage. And um, the white audience, the, members. the white audience members, and the white actors. Oh, I didn't realize They all that. stayed on stage. So all the black actors come out into the audience and they're sitting and they're, you know, they're connecting or she's just, she has this long monologue and she's connecting and people, I mean, women that I saw were completely breaking down, like completely breaking down. Regardless based on what of she race? Was saying. They were the, the people of color who were still in the uh, audience uh, were breaking down and people on stage too were breaking down. Oh, uh, I didn't have that experience. Oh, I mean, it was mostly women. It wasn't men. <laughs> well, to be honest with you. Th- I that remember I when I was convulsing, mm-hmm. when the two sisters were, because they were hysterical. <laughs> they were. And that competition was so obvious Fierce. to me. Did that, did that remind I, you of me and Lindsay? I remember laughing so hard that I turned this way and there was a black woman sitting a few rows behind me because I was on the side. Uh-huh. You know how it's it's yeah. kind of like. There's side it's like seats. three three quarters. It, the rest it was the only weirdness. seats we could get. It was sold out. Yeah. And um, anyway, what did that teach you? Well, I have to say, I was I was definitely still processing. I still probably still am, but I have encouraged as many people who are white to go see it as I could, and people who were black to go see it, like Michael Wiggins. Um, How was he? He's great. He's Is he here. still at the public? No, no. He, what? I thought he was at the public. A lot, like uh, 20 years ago. I have seen him since he left here. Oh, no, no. But he, I, was, I talked with him once and I loved it. Yeah, he's amazing. Uh, no, he was in Baltimore at the Center Theater oh. stage. Um, and now he's at Pier 55, which is here in, by Chelsea Market. Uh-huh. You need some help with some, some of that? Um, anyway, what did, what did I make of it? I, well, you, you, you sort of said it that the, you know, the, the stories, the, there are playwrights of color or, or more specifically African-American playwrights who I think are really trying to, to, um, well, make statements and turn the mirror um 
So like this this uh, slave play, for example, that's coming to Broadway. I'm buying tickets for the because yeah. I didn't see it at public. But you know what? There was an article or in the Oct- Times. Did you see the Octoroon a couple oh, seasons God, ago? I love that. Oh my God. That was brilliant. That's Brandon. Yeah, I love Brandon. Uh, I can never remember if it's Jenkins Jacobs or Jacobs Jenkins. I think it's Jenkins Jacobs. But <laughs> there are so many wonderful, talented, mm-hmm. wonderfully talented, uh, younger black writers right now i mean the um strange loop musical down at playwrights horizons oh. is about a gay black man look what i think is happening is um and this was in the new york times mm-hmm. they talked about the white gays yes did you read that article uh probably okay and it was jesse green the white critic for the Times, and a black academic. I think she's a critic, but I don't know for what publication, of course. And they were talking about all these black plays and Mm -hmm. the white gays and what that means. And her argument was, well, how come there's no women of color critics? I mean, white people are still deciding which play by a black person is worthy. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that's a little weird? And that's the white gaze. Like they still get to decide which plays get produced, which plays are worthy, the critics. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it's the dynamic is so skewed. <laughs> to just tell a story. You know, one of my favorite works of art was Get Out. That film was so stunning mm-hmm. to me. I didn't see his new one. Me neither. Uh, with Lupita. I mm-hmm. thought uh, it's more of a horror film, and I like psychological horror, which is what Get Out was. Get Out was like, I said to people, so good. I said, it's Rosemary's Baby meets Guess Who's Coming for Dinner. Yeah. And um, it was brilliant. It was brilliant because it was a specific genre and it was saying, look how you cannibalize us. Look how you use us. You know, it's hard to talk about race when you know that some people can't really handle it. And... You know, the dominant culture is the dominant culture. And I think I've pretty much just tried to figure out what what's universal here. I mean, I spent so much time as a gay man watching straight romance, extrapolating, that it became very handy for me when I had to take kids of color to see plays about white people and encourage them to extrapolate what's the universality here what's the human story here that we can all relate to whatever color or ethnicity we are but it just feels like why do we still have to do this um and it's probably why i just said i i don't need to do this i don't need to play a hot dog vendor or a cab driver or a janitor 
Although I will because the money's so fucking good. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a whore. What can I say? Do you never heard that joke? What's the difference between an actor and a prostitute? A prostitute can turn down a trick. Oh, damn. Girl, it's true. Thank you for listening to episode 33, act one of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Ted Sod, introspective dramaturgy. Join us next time for act two. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. John o. Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the brand new pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch the latest video series, We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life.